Alrighty, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsher hanging out with the lovely Mary Goulet. Hello, Mary Goulet. Hello. Richie Ote, what's up, my brother? How you doing? Doing great. Thank my you. Wade's got under control down the studio over there, and uh, Kelly's got it under control back at headquarters. And here on Beyond Eight Figures, we do sit down with entrepreneurs at various, well, junctures of their business, starting and scaling and exiting. And uh, for those who are just starting, it usually means that they have exited for you know ten million or more from another business. Those who are scaling are typically doing ten million or more, and uh, sometimes a lot more than that. Uh, and of course, those who are exiting are sharing their strategies around how and really how to get the most, uh, shall we say, the highest valuation for their business and what they're doing to to structure their business for exiting and uh, and sharing a lot of those tools and tactics and strategies and shortcuts as well. Uh, and so, if you haven't listened to any of the past episodes yet, what are you waiting for? Go back and listen to the archive because uh, we sat down with amazing entrepreneurs, millionaires, billionaires, uh, people who have built, you know, huge global conglomerate. I mean, you name it from all sorts of different industries, from furniture to real estate. To, I mean, my God, I think we've uh, we've certainly covered book publishing. You know, just covered the gamut here, life sciences, et cetera. And uh, a lot of really interesting guests coming up uh, as well, including uh, there is a woman who will be joining us soon. I think Kelly got that set up for us. Um, her, she talk about like just the poster child for raising amazing children. So get this. She has two daughters. One of her daughters is the founder of 23 and me. If you're familiar with 23 and me, right. The other daughter is like the head honcho at YouTube. Talk about raising amazing kids, right? Just unbelievable. Uh, and then she'll, uh, at some point here need, uh, Dwayne Clark. And everything that our buddy Dwayne here is doing, because uh, then she'll need assisted living, and uh, her her <laughs> rich kids will get her the best place in the in the world, which maybe is ages uh, ages living there, right? So, Dwayne, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, man, really uh, awesome having you here with us on Beyond Eight Figures. Uh, obviously, I alluded a little bit to what you're doing there in a, in a bit of a facetious manner, but we'll uh, we'll cover quite a bit of that. You're joining us here from uh, are you in are you in Seattle? Yeah, I'm in Seattle on the east side of town. On the east side of town there. Nice, man. And just give um, give folks an understanding of how you meet the criteria for Beyond Eight Figures, because you've done a lot of things over, over your career. We'll get into uh, right. mo- much, much, much more of that, of course. And so actually we haven't even started, so we've got to get into all of that. Um, but uh, how do you meet the criteria? Have you exited for uh, from a business for more than $10 million, or do you currently run businesses that gross more than oh, 10 yeah. million annually. Okay. Oh, yeah. Former, we, former ladder, which is it? We have uh, Aegis Living. We have uh, about two and a half to $3 billion in real estate assets. We are about $300 million in, in operating revenues, approaching $300 million. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, we've exited through real estate sales and so on, far, far greater than $10 million. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So just want to get clarity then around. Let's go back to uh, the the pre. Were, were there pre ages uh, ages days, or, or has this been your sole entrepreneurial endeavor? No, well, I've 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 uh, you know worked in senior housing for thirty four years. Okay, um, ages has been around about twenty two years, but I was the executive vice company of a of a public company before that. So took a company public called a public a company called Sunrise, which was the largest senior housing company in the world at one time. And I was I was the executive vice president of that company in my early 30s. Mm. Yeah, Sunrise has a lot. I mean, I, I, 
we were in, uh, well, I know I was in Chicago for about 44 years, and I, and I, I want to say there were some Sunrise facilities uh, in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Is that, yeah, yeah. okay. I, I, built, I built most of those, yes. Yeah. I know okay. them well. Yeah. I got you. So, so to that end, obviously it made you a natural candidate then to, well, you cut your teeth on somebody else's dime, did, it seems like you did fairly well there. So you've, you've got this resume. At what point did you wake up and you said, you know what, I, I think I want to do this on my own? Well, you know, I'd worked for, for Sunrise and a previous company to that. And, you know, I, I kept uh, just watching the CEO and saying, I think I can do this. I think I could do this. And then, you know, you want to make a better widget, right? So you mm-hmm. want to say, what, what's wrong with my current company? And I, even when I worked for these other companies, my staff, I would always have this exercise called how to, how to make the better widget. And I'd say, okay, you've just inherited $200 million. Now you have to compete with the company you work for. How would you design a, a new company to beat the company you're working for? Hmm. And, and that was always a really interesting exercise. It would give me lots of ideas about the kind of company I wanted to build. So yeah. and that's, that's what I did. What, what did you see? Because Sunrise has a pretty good reputation. I yeah. mean, you know, there there are some assisted living facilities that don't. <laughs> I mean, right. you, you know the industry. I mean, I don't think yeah. we're talking about Sunrise here. So what what did you see as the opportunity that they weren't pursuing? Well, I think I think whenever public money enters into a company, it changes the complexity and culture of a company. Mm. Um, you're, you're, you start marching to the beat of a different drum. You're you're, it's about quarterly earnings and it's about, um, you know, what the analysts want you to do and so on. And so I knew I didn't want to be involved in a public company, that I wanted to be a privately held company, a family-based business. Um, so that was one. The, the second thing is I really wanted to emphasize having an incredible employee-first culture. And, uh, you know, a lot of people give that lip service, right? A lot of people say, yes, we're an employee-first company, want to do this. But I, I really wanted to go to the next level. I mean, I wanted to provide food for, for my employees at you know almost nothing rates. We, we you can get a full you know full five course meal for a dollar, and wow. you, and you can take it home for your family if you want to take home a meal for five. You can do it for five dollars. So that was important to me. It was important to me because I grew up in a really poor family, yeah. single mom, and a lot of that you know we we didn't have food to eat often enough, and so that that was an important mission for me. So, and then we set upon these crazy things that we did in our company that were going to define us for our culture. For instance, we have our own internal lottery. And, you know, people would say, what are you, what are you talking about, dude? What do you have your own internal lottery? Well, I was talking to one of our line staff one day and she said, I'm going to go buy a lotto ticket. And I thought, yeah, that's interesting. I go, well, what are your odds of winning? She goes, you know, I don't know, but it's just, I love playing. I love the chance. And, you know, it's like $10 million that I could win. So I looked up the odds of winning, and obviously it, it, it differs based on the state lottery or national lottery or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's like one in 10 million, one in 50 million, you know? Yeah. So I, I came back to my staff and I said, we're going to have our own internal lotto. And they kind of looked at me like I'd been on a drunken binge for three days. <laughs> They're like, what, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, then we could set up this lot. You know, we can't give away millions of dollars, but maybe we could give away $50,000 to the top prize on it. Wow. And I said, we could turn this in to a staff retention device because every year you work for the company, you get an extra ticket in the lotto. Hmm. And if somebody worked for us 15, 18 years, you know, you have like a one in a hundred chance of winning. That's a lot better odds. 
And so every time I, I, I suggested this, I'd see the management team, they'd turn and run the other way. And I'd see them in the hallway and say, hey, I want to talk to you about the lotto. And they'd, they'd bolt, you know. So, but I think it goes to the point that if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a CEO, and you really feel passionate about the idea that's going to work, you know, don't, don't give up on it. Even if your senior team think it's crazy. It's become one of the most successful things we've done. We give away seventy five dollars to $80,000 every year. We, we gross it up, so they net that. And it's life-changing money. Because what somebody gets $50,000, they can go buy a new car. They can buy a, put a down payment on a condo. Sure. They can go back to school. They can you know, do all kinds of things. So this, you know, this was one of those crazy things that we did that you know, my senior team kind of rolled their eyes and say, oh, not another Dwayne idea. And it's become one of the most successful things we did. And you know, that's, we were voted last, a year and a half ago as Glassdoor's top 50 companies to work for oh. out of over 700,000 companies nominated. Um, oh. About nine, 10 months ago, we were voted uh, top 20 out of 700,000 companies for work-life work balance by Glassdoor. So, you know, you've got to become obsessed with these crazy things for your culture. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's the people that touch the, the clientele that make the difference. So, you know, if you go to a restaurant tonight and they said, everybody says, oh, it's a great restaurant and the food is good, but the service is lousy. You know, your impression you leave is going to be lousy. And so you have to say what's happening between the corporate office and that point of service that's been diminished, that, that you have to execute at that point of service to be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Points well taken. And I don't want to just really <clears throat> beat this horse here, but it's just an interesting concept. Are you, are you saying that as far as this lotto goes, that the employees put in their money and then there's some sort no. of split. No, you, you as the, no. you as the yeah, company. There's no, put there's in. no money. There's no money. Oh, there's not a money fun. thing. Yeah. They don't put in any, they get a, they get a chance in the lotto and the big barrel that you turn, they get a chance based on employment. So once you've used to a year of, of employment and you're in good standing, your name goes in the lotto. You know, if you have five years in, you oh, may have five oh. chances in the lotto. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't buy anything. They're I got gotcha. you. By virtue of being an employee, they get chances and more more years, more chances. Mm-hmm. And and so the prizes though are cash prizes. Hundred percent cash. I mean, Fifty thousand, you know, is top prize. We'll talk about the philanthropic side of what you do here in a, in a little bit, but it would seem like there would probably be an opportunity. You know, those fifty fifty raffles you see at the games and that sort of thing. I mean, we get with everything that you do on the philanthropic side. I would not be surprised if that was. If, if that is where you were going with it, but obviously it's a, it's a different direction, but we'll, we'll shift gears here. So let me, let me ask you a question. You're, so you're sitting in, in sunrise and you're going, okay, I can, I can build a better widget here. You do what? Like this is, this is where a lot of entrepreneurs get, or, or shall we say, entrepreneurs, you know, get stuck, right? It's like, what's, what's that first step? Now you, you had a decade, almost two decades into this industry. So you really understood it. Yeah, but nevertheless, there's still step one. Yeah. I want to. I want to open my own facility. Take take us back through those embryonic stages of of that transition for you. Well, what, one of the things that used to happen is, you know, I, I tend to be kind of an entrepreneur and an idea machine. I, I think to the point I probably exhaust people, and so I would go into my CEO and I'd say, "Hey, I have this idea of how this is my previous company, how we should do things." And they'd say, eh, you know, I, I, I don't think that's a good idea. So I'd go back two days later, come back. Hey, here's another idea. I think we should do this this way. Well, I like the way we do it. So I kept getting these kind of negative um, feedback on these crazy ideas that we had about, you know, what we should be doing. Every time I got that negative feedback, I would take that little piece of paper, that proposal, and I'd put it in this black box. 
Well, guess what happened after about 80 of those rejections? Guess what that black box turned into? That black box turned into my business plan for my new company. And I said, these are all the things that were said no to that were differentiators, right? So when I started Aegis, one of the things that I did is that one of the very first things I did is I said, I never want to say no to an employee idea. So we, we created the black box program. And in every home, there's a black box that employees put into. And some of our best programmatic ideas, our best efficiency ideas, our best staff reward programs mm-hmm. come out of these black box programs. Yeah. And then, then we publish them and we reward people financially for them so they get a lot of credit. So that, that was one of the first things I did. Obviously, um, you know, our business is capital intensive. So it's not like you could say, hey, you know, tomorrow I want to, you know, go build an assisted living company. And, you know, I got $168 in the bank. I think I can do this. If, if you were to build a property today in a metro area, it would probably cost you anywhere from 40 to $80 million to build it. And you know, 25%, probably if, if you're new, 30% of that would be needed for equity. Mm-hmm. So again, to build a property, one property, you're going to need, you know, somewhere between 12 and $20 million. Yeah. So we, I had to find a partner that had access to capital. And I found a partner who was a developer builder. And uh, we went out and between friends and family, again, going back to my day, I did not want venture money. I didn't want, I didn't want that influence on the culture. So we raised all friends and family. This is in 1997. We raised almost $23 million. Wow. And that to me, I thought, oh, this was a great amount of money. Now I did it in three tranches and this, I just, I share a couple of stories with you because sure. it's, it wasn't so easy as I said, oh, we're going to raise $23 million. The first tranche was $10 million. And I said, hey, this should take us to, you know, two years. And uh, in about six months, we ran out of money because we were building new buildings and we had burn, but we didn't have revenue, right? So in six months, we, we totally were toast. And so- So Dwayne, so hold now, on. I want to give you a, just a quick timeout if you don't mind. So just, just so I'm clear here, having done some real estate development for, for a number of years. So that, that $10 million that you raised was that, so that is um, just- I just want to make sure I'm, was that for a set number of properties that these people were investing in? Was that an investment in the entire right. uh, company? And what was the goal in terms of what you were going to build for that? Yeah. In terms of the number of units and, and locations and, and revenue and return. I just want to make sure I'm good. clear like that, that whole promise structure there. Yeah. Good point of clarification. It was, it was the parent company and the parent company by proxy would own, uh, would, would own holdings in the real estate of each of the properties we developed. And it was into perpetuity until the company sold. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, was, it was a pie in the sky kind of matrix in terms of return analysis. And for each uh, individual property, sorry, again, I just want to make sure I'm clear here. So for each individual property, was there a waterfall structure tied to that and in in additional investors? Yeah, yeah, it, exactly. And so the parent, which these initial investors, I think there was 32, 34, something like that, own the parent company. The parent company would get a would get a, a promote a fifty percent of the entity, and then the real estate would get the other fifty percent. The IRR on those things range from fifteen to twenty percent. Mm-hmm. And and, and, they, and what were you able to carve out for yourself then personally? It, well, you we well whatever my percentage was of the parent company, but we own fifty percent of every property. Okay, I got you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so that it was pro rata, whatever you owned. In, in the parent company. And again, there was 30 some partners. 
So for the first 10, was it the intention of opening a couple facilities, three facilities, no, two facilities, no. one facility? Like, was there we, any? We, we knew we had to have at least 10 to have scale. Mm. And, you know, 20 would be better. So we, you know, we built. Uh, so going back to the story, we ran yeah. out, of that, out of that $10 million in six months. My partner goes, well, I think I can get another $5 million. He went out because he was the money guy. He went out and tried to raise another $5 million, got that $5 million. That lasted us about another five or six months. And he called me one day and he goes, we're out. You know, and then we went back and we said, okay, we raised, uh, I think it was a, another seven and a half million. And that ran out. And it was like two months before we could refi our, our, our building to get some cash out. And he, he calls me and said, we don't have money for payroll. Mm. And I'm like, oh, and he's like, have you, can you max out your credit cards? Is there anything you could do? You know, I said, man, I'm, I'm, I'm out of everything. And, and my son had just been accepted in UCLA. And I said, the only thing I have is my kid's college fund. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, we have to use it. I'm like, I'm not going to use my kid's college fund. You know, and I promised my kid he can go to UCLA. Well, long story short, we ended up using my kid's college fund. <laughs> he, he did not get to go to UCLA because it wasn't paid back in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. I started, I said, well, University of Washington looks phenomenal. You know, it's right. a great school. And that in-state tuition is awesome. So, you know, it's things, things when you're an entrepreneur don't go in a linear fashion. It's more like a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and I think the other, the other message there is, you know, it's not only the CEO and the entrepreneur that takes the risk, it's their entire family. This entire, you know, uh, network that pays the price for your decisions. And so, mm-hmm. you know, fast forward, I bought my partner out almost a decade ago. Uh, the company is on a terror. We have six or seven hundred million dollars in construction right now, development. Um, and you know, we're we've never looked back. We've never had a year with less than double digit uh, profit growth. Mm-hmm. Richie, were you gonna? Yeah, there's like. 10 things I was going to say. So now I'm trying to think, okay, based on where we're at in the conversation now, one of the things pun intended on this business is booming, right? You got baby boomers that are coming in right into this, but I had a kind of a thought slash question to add to your crazy uh, idea, black box. Do you have any incentive for your employees for their family members to become as maybe their parents or whatever to, to actually come into the facility so they can even see their family even more because. Oh yeah. Yeah. We have, we have bring your child to work day. I mean, kids go in there often, even in situations where people have had difficult childcare, we we let them bring their child to work and interact. And, and we have intergenerational program, intergenerational programs with kids and staff, but more, more to the point we have, we have really rich, programs, robust programs with families. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, I was told you about growing up kind of in an impoverished home. Uh, my mom was a line cook. There's four, four siblings. My closest one was eight years older. So they all left. And I was kind of a juvenile delinquent. My mom decided to pull me out. I got a church scholarship to go to a private school. And so she had spent all her money moving and getting us into this little apartment in this town, a hundred miles away from our original home. And she comes home one day and she says, we're out of food or out of money. And, you know, being a smart kid, like, what's new? We're always out of money. We're always broke. And we had this little one, one bedroom apartment. She walks over to the refrigerator. She opens it up. Little light goes on. There's a, there's a, a cube of butter, a can of condensed milk and an onion. And she said, the only thing we can do is I can steal potatoes from work and we can eat potato soup for two weeks. 
And we did. And my mom was a very ethical, honest person. She never stole anything in her life. She said, we're going to pay him back with interest. And that was a profound moment in my life. So when I started Aegis, we actually started the Potato Soup Foundation. And one of, uh, I think one of the remarkable things is these are people that are making $18, $19 an hour. They don't really have a civic-minded charity or, you know, they're not philanthropic, right? They're 25, 30-year-old people. We've actually taught people to give back through that. Now, I funded it. The company funded it, set up all the initial funding. But we allow people, if they want to take 25 cents a paycheck out of it or 50 cents or a dollar or $10, they can contribute to the foundation. What this foundation has been able to do is help people in domestic violence, people with their apartment burned down, emergency surgery, they had to bury their dad, they need, you know, whatever. And it's created this community of sustainability that families participate in that's very robust, very vibrant, and that they feel like family. They, they, you know, you got my back that if something happens to me, you know, that there's an insurance policy that I know that the company will take care of me. That has been incredibly successful. The second thing is I started listening to these uh, radio DJs uh, 20 some years ago and they would do this surprise Christmas thing. And I started talking to my senior staff about when we started Asia said, what if we turned our entire office into a retail store during the holidays and invited our employees, their spouses, their children, even their neighbors, if they want to bring them and give them everything they could possibly need for the holidays. So you know, coats, gloves, you know, watches, jewelry, turkeys, you know, whatever. And we started this thing called Winterfest, and it, it's been going on for almost 20 years now. And our last Winterfest, I think, our corporate office had 700 people through it in six and a half hours. So those are a couple of examples. Wow. So in, in your going back to the childhood and looking in the refrigerator, seeing the potato uh, and – or Onion. The, the onion and the butter and go, needing to go down the potato soup route. What was it that like got you started in entrepreneurialism in general? Because like, that was it that hunger? Was it the desire that I'm never going to let this happen again? What? Yeah. Well, it's, it's a good question. I think uh, two things. That two week period, um, you know, eating potato soup, which was not delicious after the fourth or fifth day. Um, you know, my mom, my mom actually gave me some great advice. She said, you know, she was a great cheerleader, great confidence builder. She said, I know you're going to be incredibly successful. You're, you know, you're probably going to have people work for you, you know, but, you know, don't forget you ate potato soup for, for two weeks. And the reason behind this, and, you know, know that if you have employees, they're going to have needs and you have to anticipate them and always be them there for them and they'll be there for you. So I think that was an anchor for me. The, the other thing, I don't know if you guys remember uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer. Um, you know, he was a great mentor to me. And he used to tell me, Dwayne, sometimes we learn in reverse. And so, you know, my father left when I was young, I was seven years old, and he was abusive. He was, he was a bad man. And one day I was talking to Wayne about him and I said, oh yeah, my dad, poor me, I had such a bad childhood. And he goes, God, you had a great dad. I'm like, no, no, you don't realize he, he was a jerk. He beat my mom. He beat my siblings. You know, he was a drunk. He was a bad dad. He goes, yeah, isn't that incredible? And I'm like, dude, I am not communicating with you. You know, you're not seeing the level of disgust I have for this man. And he goes, Dwayne, I have to ask you a question. He goes, are you a great dad? Oh, yeah, I'm a phenomenal dad. He says, are you a great husband? I said, yeah, I'm a phenomenal husband. He goes, what did your dad teach you? I thought, wow. 
So sometimes, you know, the poverty that we had in our life, when I mentor young men, I mentor pro athletes and college athletes, and I have a foundation. And, and I try to talk to them about, you know, they say, well, my mom's a crack addict, or I'm born in poverty. And I go, okay, we well, have two choices. You can wall in the quagmire of your life is horrible. That's one choice. Or you can turn that into rocket fuel that propels you as far and as fast from that situation as humanly possible. Those are your two choices in life, right? Which, is, which do you think is going to yield the best results? And for me, I took that poverty to use it as rocket fuel to get as far from being impoverished in my life as possible. And I think that's what's ignited my success. Yeah. Mary, did you have anything before I jump into the next, uh, next line here? You know, I just think it's very inspiring. And I bet you are beloved by your employees and the clientele that you have there. Um, where do you see the industry going with Richard mentioning there are the baby boomers? Right. Um, what happens when maybe they can't afford the facility? Yeah. Well, senior housing is much like the hotel industry, right? So if you came to Seattle, Mary, and you said, hey, I need a room tonight, what are my options? I said, well, you can Airbnb it, you can stay in a Motel 6, you can go to the Four Seasons, you can go to the Ramada, you know. So the senior housing industry is just exactly the same. You, you, can, you can stay in what's called an adult family home that's six people, and you can pay $3,000 a month, and it's not going to be very professional, the care is not going to be that great, you know, that's an option. Or you can go to the Four Seasons, and you know, it's, it's going to be expensive and the expense is going to be driven by how much care you need, where the building's located because land and location is the primary driver of cost. Right. So, um, you guys mentioned the baby boomers, the baby boomers are not going to affect our industry for about seven or eight years. And what's happening right now is there's less being developed than, than the aging population is growing. So we're, we're behind the, the need. And that's why, you know, from a development standpoint, I know, Steve, you're a developer. That's why cap rates are rich in this industry. You know, the cap rates in senior housing during the, during the Great Recession was the number one real estate sector in the country for mm -hmm. seven years in a row. And it's because there's such a boom that we can't catch it. Now, the key to this industry is the operator. And that's why I spend so much time on culture because um, it's, it's all about the management. We, we, first of all, we hire no one from our industry as a, as a manager. That mm -hmm. may shock you, but um, our senior team, our managers come from hospitality. So I would say we grow a lot of our own people, but we hire people from Four Seasons and the W and Ritz Carlton and, you know, the one and only and all those places. Our, our senior management team, if you look at it, you would say, these guys are not from senior heads. Our president, who just started, uh, we've, he's been onboarding since January. He was the president of, uh, president of Starbucks North America. He oversaw mm. 183,000 employees and 19 billion in gross in revenue. Our head of marketing was the number two person at Nordstrom's. Our chief people officer was the head of Amazon Marketplace. You know, head of sales was the head of Levi Doctor Sales. So mm. not your typical senior housing people. And that's one of the other things when you say, what did you learn from working at other companies? We didn't have great talent. And so I, my job as CEO is to be the, the talent grower and the talent acquirer. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's uh, a couple of things I want to do here. Uh, first and foremost, I just want to stay, take a step back to that first deal again, sort of the embryonic stages here of, of Aegis. And, and when you put together that first deal, you had the track record, you had to develop, uh, you know, a developer builder as a, as a partner here. 
So was it was it just strictly based on your track record that you were able to raise these funds or of the uh, initial tranche there? That, I mean, and again, you went through three raises there to get to the 23 in total on the on the first piece in terms of that first set. of Did you put in your own money in that? I did. Yeah, you did. So of that, what what did you have as far as skin in the game in that first piece of development? Uh, I don't, I don't remember how it was exactly divided up, but probably close to a million dollars. Okay, so you so you had a, a pretty sizable amount of skin in the game, so obviously that right. brings comfort. Can you speak to that for a second in terms of aspiring entrepreneurs and those who are, and you talked about just sort of eschewing the whole venture capital side of the equation and not being tied to public money and this, that, and the other, but can you just speak to, to skin in the game as it relates to entrepreneurship and, and just building a, a meaningful business? Yeah, well, first of all, I would tell you, if you have a partner that comes in and says, I don't want you to put any money into the deal, be, be leery, be cautious. Because if he, don't, if he doesn't want you, he's got some kind of exit that you may not be involved in. Mm. So, uh, you know, you want to be parapasu, you want to be locked in on that person's hip in terms of how things happen. So put your own money into the game. Mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think you get a lot more street cred with your investors um, you know, people always say, well, I'm leveraging my talent. Well, that's great. But um, leveraging your talent and your money is a lot more substantial. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's how you're able to raise capital like that. And not only raising capital, but being bankable. Mm-hmm. You know, when, you, when you're going to the bank and say, hey, I need a $40 million loan for this building, they go, what do you got at risk? They, mm-hmm. they want to see you have skin in the game. And, you know, I, I, one of my favorite stories that I tell our investors is, my sister, who was a social worker, who in 1997, I don't think had ever made more than $43,000, you know, when I was raising capital and I didn't ask her for money. She came to me and I don't remember exactly what the figure was, but it was like $112,642.89. And she hands me this check. I'm like, what, what is this? Where did you get this money? She said, well, it's my life savings. I, you know, I mortgaged my house. I, you know, I took out my IRA and I'm like, Oh my God, you know, you, you feel this overwhelming sense of responsibility on your shoulders. Like there's no freaking way I'm going to fail. There's no way I'm going to lose this money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's been a phenomenal asset for her. She's grown her money many times over, but you know, when your family gives you money that yeah. you want to talk about motivation that for me, that was motivation. Yeah. A hmm. uh, couple of different mm, lines of, of, questions here so uh, dilution can you can you speak to protecting yourself against dilution as, as the business continues to grow yeah is that an issue for you at all well it was an issue in the beginning because we we did dilute as we raised capital yeah you know? and i think in the beginning i don't don't quote me on these numbers but i think i i, I probably owned 18 percent of the company coming out of the blocks and then we diluted and then it was down to 15 and then we dilute again i was down to like 12 and a half and mm-hmm. you know it's just one of the things then i bought my partner out and we actually did a reverse dilution and you know i ended up today i own three quarters of the company you do so, well okay and 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 i should tell you that i gave gave with no money asked i gave 20 percent of my senior team ownership in the company um, in an employee stock option pool where there's a vesting period and they got to earn out no I, I was stupid. I didn't do that. <laughs> um, I, I would not advise that to your 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 listeners. Yeah. Um, they, they now we do it that way now. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, I just said, "Hey, I love you guys. You're my family. You're in this with me." And this is after I bought my partner out. You know, here's twenty percent mm. of the company. Yeah. Um, and and here's what I will tell you about that. 
not everyone realizes that equity is has value. And I remember a conversation I had once with my head of marketing, and she had, you know, in today's value, it would have probably been several millions of dollars in equity. And I gave her a raise, and it was like a three and a half, four percent raise, and and she was debating whether uh, she should get a four and a half percent raise. The week before, I'd given her a distribution check for three hundred and forty-seven thousand dollars. Wow! Yeah. The the one percent in her raise would have would have amounted to you know another two thousand dollars a year or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And so I looked, and she's like, "Man, I can't believe you're screwing me on this." And I'm like, "Do you see that check I just gave you last week?" Wow. Now. That's a case in point where not everybody realizes that equity has value. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, you need to pay attention to that. And, and there, there's probably only four or five people that really realize what equity means in the company. Yeah. Let, let, let's talk about valuation, if we can, for a second here, because, you know, at some point, and, and obviously with the real estate being tied to it, it's a bit of a different animal than, than a SaaS company or, you know, a different, you know, a, I don't know, fulfillment by Amazon, whatever. Just like there's a million different types of company, furniture company, you name it. Right. I mean, you have the real estate and then you have obviously the operating entity with the net operating income from that, et cetera. Right. How, from, from a valuation standpoint, how do you value a company then that has the operating entity and and the real estate? Do you, do you keep those entirely separate so that the real estate is owned in a separate entity and then ostensibly is uh, like a master lease to the, to the operating company. I'm just curious about structure and, and then valuation, because you said you had some exits, which means you let go of some of those assets. I would think over time when somebody stepped to the table and said, Jesus, we love asset. A. I mean, this is, this is main and main here. We want to buy this from you. So I know there's a whole bunch of questions in that, but can you, can you speak to that in general? Yeah, well, it's a two for business, right? So, um, and maybe even a more than two for business. So you have the real estate assets and we have, you know, we're in really good locations. We're in Seattle, who's led the nation for 24 months in housing growth. We're in San Francisco, we're in LA, Orange County, Las Vegas. So we're in some really good markets and, uh, you know, we have 40 locations and, and what we've We've been involved in about 60 properties. My, when my partner and I split, he got eight or 10 properties. We've sold some and so on. But what, what, we, what we do is we combine them. The, the operating company drives the, the cap rate for the real estate value. So it's no different than, you know, you're a, a shopping mall and, you know, you, you've got, uh, you know, Nordstrom's and Neiman Marcus as your, your anchor tenants, right? Mm-hmm. Well, your value of your, your real estate, that's going to go up. Or it's no different than a hotel that, you know, if Marriott puts your flag on there because their balance sheet, you know, you're going to have a better value on that real estate. We combine them. Um, now, there are properties that we've sold and then sale leasebacks on with REITs and other things. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've been able to do that. But, uh, you know, it's a family owned company. Um, and so our, our goal at this point is we don't need capital. Um, we have about 200 and we may be over 300 now high net worth investors whose combined net worth for equities over $25 billion. Mm. So we, we don't, we don't need money. I mean, we could self-finance some of these things. So, you know, what, what we try to do is just keep creating the value and we, we are judged as the best operator in the nation. And that's just not the CEO talking. 
our trade associations say that, the cap rates that we get say that, the banks say that, and so on. So, you know, if if we want to sell something, it may be, you know, a five or maybe even a, we've, we've even had situations where it's a sub five cap rate. Mm. Yeah, which for those who are trying to like, and, and what's really interesting too, and when you talk about the cap rate, I mean, you could, you could actually boost it on both sides of the, of, of the coin there from the standpoint of, I mean, let's be honest, assisted living is not a low margin business. I mean, it's probably amongst the, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously you're very customer focused and you're employee centric and so on. So your margins may not be exactly that as some of the others that, you know, don't have the quite the reputation you do, but you would say as far as real estate assets go, you would agree that assisted living has uh, above average margins, no? Yeah, it has above average margins. They're probably not as frothy as you would think because there's a, there's a very intense labor component. And, you know, what are we having a problem with today? I mean, in the markets we at, we're at, we're almost at zero unemployment. You, you have a, a published unemployment rate of three, 3.2%, but that's, that's really, it's, it's really zero because that 3% they're not employable. Mm-hmm. So, so labor is just continuing to skyrocket. And so that's, that's a huge component. And then the, the land cost and construction costs are, are just, I mean, we're, we're seeing 15, 20% increases on an annual basis. So to build, to build per foot now, are you 300, 400 a foot now to build from scratch where generally where are your numbers at in, in 2019? Oh, I would say they're North of that. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, well, and again, it depends on the market. I mean, if we're building in Metro Seattle, um, and are you talking about uh, land? Forget about, forget oh. about the land, to absent, okay. absent the land. So the land's yeah. going to be what the land's going to be. We, we, we do it more on a unit cost all in. I mean, our unit cost may be seven, $800,000 a unit. Wow. So, you, and so why not acquire existing and, and just rehab? Why not acquire 300K doors and, and put 100K into it? Steve, if you can find those, you <laughs> right away. Um, yeah, yeah, so I got you. It's it's a demand equation, right? Wow. So the 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 problem is we only want to be in certain markets. It, we you know we only want to be in markets where the average house value is north of seven eight hundred thousand dollars, with actual household incomes north of ninety thousand. Yeah. So you know if we want to go to Des Moines, Iowa, and buy a, you know an old property that's sure. thirty years old that's programmatic. Uh, you know, obsolete and just doesn't meet our niche. We can. Yeah. The other thing is, we're very focused on geographics because we think one of our calling cards is how how we're very focused on the markets we serve, and so we get to know our clients in those markets a lot better. So we give a lot better service. Mm-hmm. The food service is different in Florida than it is in California. New York has different cultural standards than you do in in Washington. So mm-hmm. we're very focused on our customer and building in the markets that we serve. Yeah, and then one more question before I give. Marion Rich, another opportunity yeah. here because, like, real estate. I mean, like, all the kind of like, I just you know, something I could talk all day long here. Um, Me too. Is, is there an exit strategy? Is there an exit plan, or is this, or is this a generational? Uh, it's, a, just, it's a it's a generational plan. Both my kids work for the company. They do. Uh, okay. we, we have no plans on selling. What what we're going to do is we're going to recycle our older properties. We just did that. Um, we we sold ninety three percent of three older properties. There's a record setting cap rate. Mm-hmm. Um, price free in it. So, um, and you know, again, it put a bunch of money into the company that we don't really need, it made our investors super happy. I bet. Uh, but, you know, and helps us with our programmatic 
standards and mm -hmm. what we do for our residents and so on. That's so, taxable though. You you didn't you didn't want to go refi or something of that nature to get to, to well, get to we, town, is it, you know the tax redistribution there. We do both. You do both. We do both. So we have we have buildings that are regularly set up on refi plans. So I've just. 30 minutes ago, having a meeting right, right here with my CFO about what's next on the refi list. So you you have things that are on the, the refi list. And as you build, you know, equity into those, what, what I call it the trapped equity exercise you go through and you try to pull that out on a tax-free basis. So. Yeah. Uh, folks, <laughs> um, love I, this stuff. Again, please. I got yeah. a gazillion questions, but I'm going to kind of go into something specific to the niche you chose. So you seem like an incredibly giving person and good on you for choosing this niche too. But I also see this other side of you and wonder, do you sit on any other boards where you can help people that do want to go to Des Moines and go to these other places? Because it's not like there's not old people everywhere. Yeah. You know, I, I, for, this is my 34th year in this industry. So probably for my first 25 years, I, sat on boards. I was in the National Trade Association. I wrote the first manual for assisted living in the nation. Um, I was on every task force in the universe. And probably in the last eight to 10 years, my life has just changed. And I think, you know, what I'm trying to do in a big mission of mine is create really great life artifacts for, you know, to make the world better for the generation coming after me. And, you know, part of, I, I don't want to be stigmatized as the assisted living guy. So I started a film company called Through Productions that makes socially worthy films. You know, I started writing books. Uh, I've got my seventh book coming out. Um, I wrote a play, co-wrote a play that's traveling. It's going to be in New York in November. Um, and, you know, I started foundations. I have a foundation called D1. As I said, mentors young, underprivileged guys who are some of the top athletes in the nation. Mentor pro athletes, mentor uh, two college uh, football players right now. So really wanted to start doing things differently that uh, created my artifacts for my legacy. And uh, I, I feel like I've, I'm kind of over leveraged in terms of the senior housing that made that contribution. And I still, I mean, I just gave a TED talk at the national conference last October. So I still periodically do things and, and, you know, if people call me for advice, I try to impart my wisdom because I've I've done almost 300 senior housing projects, so I, I know that business. Oh, thank you. Wow. And uh, the only other thing that I wanted to clarify that I said earlier when I was mentioning uh, bringing the parents in, I, I literally mean an interesting place. Since these are all wealthier people, they're usually getting rid of their old houses when they're moving right. into these places. And so I'm almost talking more about employees that want to be so vested in your company that they want to bring their parents yeah. literally to live there. And mm -hmm. then they get to see their parents more. That's why I said, it, it, you know, the clarification of it kind of was a little crazy idea to go in your little black box. <laughs> yeah, no, we, and we have that. We, we probably, I mean, one of the managers I was just talking to yesterday, she became a manager because her parents lived there and, mm -hmm. and, so she, she is my, my president who just retired last week. Her mom lived with us for five years. My mom died in an ages. So it happens all the time that, you know, our, our families do that and live there. Um, and I just want to comment on one thing, cause I think this is a misconception. You said mostly wealthy people live there. The only, the only requirement really, and it's not a requirement of ours is the reason that we build in markets that are seven to $800,000 in house value 
is that's how these people pay for it. Most of our people are teachers and mailmen and retired Boeing workers and you know nurses and so on. So they may not have made a lot of money in their salary, but they've bought a house in the neighborhood that's now free and clear. It's seven, eight hundred thousand dollars, and they take their Social Security, their little pension, their IRA, whatever, you know, net, net, kind of knit that together, and then they may spend down you know another twenty, thirty thousand dollars from their home equity. And and people are only living with us two and a half years. They're not living with us ten years. They're living in the last two to three years of their life. So that you don't. It's not like you know everyone's got a millionaire person living in our building. They're they're average Joes, but they own a house in a in a in a decent neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And the and the average price point for something in Seattle or something in L.A. Just to give folks an understanding, obviously it's a monthly cost. What what's what's yeah. the average on uh, yeah. on a room nowadays? Yeah, and the monthly cost is going to range from, you know, for the apartment itself, but it includes all your food, all your utilities, all your house cleaning activities, transportation, all the things. Probably range from, you know, 3700 up and, and up, you know, 5000 6000 mm-hmm. And then care, care is on top of that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you have severe Alzheimer's and, you know, care could be sure. double that. Sure. Yeah. Is there, is there, and given your philanthropic, uh, just obviously you've got a, a deep, uh, give back side is what you were saying. And obviously your work uh, reflects with potato soup and queen bee and D one and, and everything else that mm-hmm. you're doing there. I, is there any sort of subsidized scholarship or any, any sort of subsidizing that you do for uh, a, like, I don't know, 1% of your, of your residents as um, again, in some sort of philanthropic to make it accessible for those who can't get in at the, at those levels. Do, do you have yeah. any sort of program like that? We we don't have a formal program. I will tell you, we subsidize a lot of people. Yeah. Um, the the problem with having the you know publishing it and saying we're going to subsidize you know one percent, then you got a lot of people that are angry as to why you're not they're not in the one percent. So mm-hmm. it's it's more of an informal program than a formal program. But I, I can think of half a dozen people off the top of my head that are being subsidized today. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. So my wife is a uh, funeral director. <coughs> She's a funeral director and embalmer, and uh, and we've actually been looking here in San Diego, getting her her own place. Um, and it would seem like at some point, partnerships with companies like yours would be would be a natural, right? I mean, do you do you in, in the internet marketing world? They you know obviously there's folks who are familiar with affiliate marketing, and so you refer somebody here, you end up getting a commission or a percentage of that sale there, right? Is there do you have any sort of relationships like that where, cause there would seem to be in, in your vertical, there would seem, yeah. seem to be a, and maybe this is a black box idea here, but just from a revenue stream perspective, it would just seem like there would be like hospice care and those sort of people. I mean, do you, if you make a referral over to someone else, is that part of your revenue model or is that not even in the no. scheme? Yeah. We, we, we like to keep our revenue model pure mm-hmm. and you know, we, we may say, Hey, go to ABC funeral home because they're six blocks away or they give great service or whatever. Yeah. We, we never want to be conflicted by our residents where they say, Oh, you know, you got $10 by doing that. Yeah. So we, we, you know, our, all our referrals are, are clean we don't I gotcha. paid or anything. All right, let's, let's go in one, <coughs> one last direction here and then uh, we'll, we'll let you jump and really appreciate your time today. Cause I know how busy you are here, man, but let's, um, let, let's humanize you a bit. I mean, obviously you, you, you had the tough go as a kid, yeah. and the potato soup story and obviously the potato soup foundation born out of that and so on. But at this point of your life, this point of your career, I mean, you really seem to have it all, right? I mean, to, to live in the Seattle area and, and what, I mean, just 
you, you, if people were to chalk up what the American dream looks like, I'm sure a lot of people who would say, you know, Dwayne is, is living that American dream. He's got the life that I want. What, what do you still struggle with though? What, uh, what still keeps you up at night? Well, you know, first of all, when, uh, you know, the amount of employees that we care for, you know, it's approaching 3000, the amount of residents that we care for, you know, you don't want to disappoint them. You want, want to make sure that you're doing a good job for the employees you have, the residents that trust you. And so, you know, I think about that a great deal. How do, how do we keep our service commitment to both those contingencies? Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's incredibly important. You know, I, uh, I told you I was a writer. I have this book coming out called 30 Summers More. Yeah. And, and um, you know, it, it's a little bit of as a personal journey. I started writing the book because I've taken care of almost 60,000 elderly, and I wanted to see why they live so long. And so I was looking for all these commonalities and so on and so forth. And about six months into it, I had this own kind of emergency crisis in my own health where I ended up in the hospital, had a GI bleed and so on, mm. thought they were going to have to do surgery. And my wife brought me this, my manuscript. And I thought, well, this book isn't about these 60,000. It's about me and being a crazy CEO and all the things I tax on myself. So I think, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a CEO, um, you know, one of the things you have to do is, is you have to do self-preservation. And you're, you're only as good as your ability to get out of bed every day and motivate people and have energy. And so, you know, I have an abundance of ideas and abundance of things I want to accomplish, not enough time. And, you know, it's different than it was 30 years ago when I didn't have two nickels to rub together. So, but the thing you have to realize is the older you get, I found this hit me in maybe my late 40s or 50, is you have to really manage your own health better. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, you know, I, I, after that hospital visit, I lost almost 50 pounds. I totally changed my routine. That's one of the reasons this book came out. I started studying aging and longevity around the world. We've been to 82, 83 countries now and, you know, looked at all these little things, what I call micro habits that you can do to improve your wellness and longevity. And at the end of the day, you know, we all think, oh, we want, whether it's six figures, eight figures, 10 figures, whatever, your balance sheet's your balance sheet. You're not taking it with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but your health is everything. And, you know, that's, that's really how it sets the tone for your day. So, you know, really looking at how do I perfect myself in terms of my health, not only my physical, but my mental health, um, so I can be better for others and I can do the things I want to do. It's something that's it's a journey every day. Yeah. And so... A big life and 30 summers and you know, all the different stuff you've done with uh, the movies. And I mean, a lot of different things going on here. When, when does 30 summers come, come out? Comes out in September. 30 summers more comes out in September. It's going to be available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think, and again, all the profits from these books go to charity. So I, I don't make a penny on them. I just want to improve people's lives. And I think this will help. Any last thoughts here around either starting or scaling uh, or exiting from, uh, from a business? Well, I, I think what people often get on the rock track about is they think about how much money they want to make or how much, you know, what their balance sheet's going to swell to or whatever. I, I, I think what people really ought to focus is what you want your lifestyle to be, what you want your life to be, you know, and sit back and really vision Hey, this is what I want. This is in ten years or twenty years. This is what I want my life to be like. I have this. Uh, this this may be more information than you need to know, but I have this manifestation board that's seven feet long and three feet wide, and it's in my bathroom. Mm. So every bathroom. time, 
It, it is a big bathroom. <laughs> Every time I'm on the porcelain throne, I'm looking at all these things I'm manifesting. And it, it, it doesn't say, hey, I want to make you know $50 million this year. It's mm. all about this is the lifestyle I want to read. Because I, I truly believe when you're looking at these things, you're programming your brain as to what to do. And so I'm looking at these things every day going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah I got to focus on that. Mm. And I, I'm a big believer in manifesting. And I think that's been part of my success. So don't get wrapped up in, oh, I want the company to be $100 million and I want to make a million dollars this year. That, that, those will come. Think about what you want your lifestyle to be. How much time you want to be on vacation? How much time you want to spend with your kid? What's your health going to be like? You know, what, what can you do for your community? Those, those are the rich, those are the artifacts, as I call them, that'll mm -hmm. make you have a, have a rich, rich life beyond wealth. Yeah, there you go. Well, it's, uh, it's been awesome having you on, Dwayne. Again, Dwayne Clark, uh, best site for folks to go to to find out more information? Yeah, they can hit me on my website. It's Dwayne, D-W-A-Y-N-E-J, just the letter, and Clark, C-L-R-K.com. Yeah. Um, and uh, hit me up there, and I'll be glad to, to talk to you guys. Yeah, man. I really do appreciate you sharing your time and, and your expertise. I, uh, it's funny, I've actually got a, a new endeavor that uh, speaks a little bit to what you're talking about there as far as lifestyle. It's, it's specifically flexible housing for what we might term as digital nomads, just people oh. who can live and work anywhere. And, and uh, maybe at some point we'll have a conversation uh, Great idea. about that. So we'll, uh, we'll talk about that. But Dwayne, man, really, uh, you know, I mean, just, you, 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 just love the fact that, you know, not only are you doing so much from uh, the business perspective and having built such an amazing business, but just so focused on, on giving back. We just don't hear that enough on this show. And, uh, and it's what give back, <laughs> give back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So uh, Dwayne, again, thank you so much, man. We'll, uh, pleasure. we'll, we'll let you jump here and uh, best of luck with everything that you're doing. Best of luck with the, uh, the new book, 30 summers more. And uh, can't wait to pick that up when that comes out. Uh, folks go check out Dwayne and everything he's up to at Dwayne. J Clark D W A Y N E J and then just the letter J Clark C L A R K dot com. So again, enjoy All Seattle. Right. Uh, it looks Thanks, like you got guys. some sunshine there. Enjoy that for a change. And we will talk to you next time and very, very soon here, Dwayne. All right, very cool. Very Mary, cool. Mary, Mary, and again, Richie, Richie, Richie. what are we doing with our lives? I know, right? So much, so much more we can be doing, but you know, it's every, it's a, it's a work in progress. We're getting there. Yeah, I love it opens our attitude. eyes. Yeah, love, love that attitude, and uh, so many awesome things going on there with all that he is up to. All right, my friends, for Mary Goulet and Richie Ote, White Wade, Kelly Pelker, I'm Steve Olsher. We'll talk to you next time here on Beyond Eight Figures.